Today's scripture reading will be from John chapter 1, verse 36. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Bible begins with these words, In the beginning, God. And the Bible ends with these words, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. God is the subject of the very first verse of the Bible. God is the subject of the very last verse of the Bible. The Old Testament ends with words that have to do with judgment. The New Testament begins with words that have to do with the hope of one that can take all judgment away and the consequences of judgment away. If we were to underscore a single word that would encapsulate the entire Bible, it would not just be a word representing a thing, but it would be a word representing a person, and it would be Christ. Another way of saying it simply is it would be Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of all the Bible, and that's why when you look at all 66 books of the Bible, then you, you can see Jesus as the thematic word in all 66 books. It's really impressive if you think about it. What I'd like for us to do is think about Jesus in relationship to the Paschal Lamb. In Genesis to Malachi to Matthew to Revelation, we see the development of the shadow of better things to come, good things to come. Under the Old Covenant, you have the Paschal Lamb, the Pascha, the Passover Lamb. In the New Testament, you have the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. When you think about the purpose of the Lamb under the Old Testament, which we will try to develop some this morning, when you think about that Paschal lamb, that Passover lamb, that special creature under the Old Testament, part of the benefit of that lamb was not just what the lamb was or how the lamb looked, but, and they, or even what the lamb represented per se, but what the lamb did. Because it was through the sacrifice of the lamb that there was some forgiveness. Let me back that up. It was because of the sacrifice of the Lamb that there was forgiveness. Now, I realize that that might be somewhat different than what you have heard, or maybe even different than what you have believed. But under the Old Testament, there is not partial forgiveness or even no forgiveness. There is a thought that under the Old Testament, there is no forgiveness, but sins were just always rolled forward. Maybe you've heard that. Sins are just rolled forward. Maybe you've taught that. Maybe you've believed that. Sins are just rolled forward. If sins are just rolled forward, then there is no forgiveness under the Old Testament. But the Bible says in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. So under the Old Testament, there is absolutely forgiveness. So when we think about this idea of 
sins being rolled forward, it's a misnomer. Every year there was a sacrifice for sin, but it's not because the sin the year before wasn't forgiven, but what it does is it reminded those folks of their sin. In the New Testament, however, when we look at Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 and 10, we observe that because of what they did under the Old Covenant in participating in those sacrifices, they followed the rule of law, the Old Covenant law, and as a result of following that law, and because of the better covenant in, in the New Testament, we have the forgiveness of sins because the Bible says it's not by the, by the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats that takes away sin, but it's by the precious blood of Jesus. And so everything that they did under the old covenant according to law was pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. And so if they obeyed under the Old Covenant, they had forgiveness, not because of the sacrificial lamb under the Old Covenant, but they had forgiveness because of the sacrificial lamb under the New Covenant, which was Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, the shadow of something better to come, it's really an impressive thought. So for just a few minutes, let's think about four points regarding the paschal lamb and Jesus and under each one of those four points let's think of two themes two primary themes that we can observe and the first point is this that the paschal lamb was an animal with incredible historical significance so I want you to think about historical significance and then under that idea of historical significance I want you to be um, be thinking about the themes of, of something that is most sacred and most memorable, okay? So as we think of something sacred and memorable, we go back to the uh, most sacred of all Jewish offerings, which was, in fact, the sacrifice of the Lamb. Not just under the Mosaic Law, mind you, but even further back than that. If you go back to the patriarchal system, and we, of course, see that in, in Genesis, uh, we see it in Job, we, we bring Job back into its biblical context, which fits in with the book of Genesis. But under the patriarchal system, we see that there was a lamb requested for burnt offering. I want you to look in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. This is, this is really impressive. Genesis chapter 22, and let's just start with the first verse. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Now just as a parenthetical note, I want you to remember that in Genesis chapter 12, when he was called Abram, God told Abram that through your seed, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And remember, he was told, um, Abram, by God, Abram, I want you to get out of town. I want you to go to a place, and there I want you to do my bidding. And from Genesis 12 onward, we see the development of the seed promise. And in Genesis 22, verse 1 now, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Again, just a little sidebar. 
where it says that this was his only son, if you look back at the historical text, it wasn't his only son. But it was his only son of a kind. It was his monogenes, his only begotten. Just like John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so there was only one son that could meet the sacrifice here, and his name was Isaac. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddling his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the, here it is, the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. I've often thought about that idea of Abraham getting up early in the morning to do this act. I get up early in the morning, but it's not to go sacrifice anybody, much less to sacrifice my son. And yet that is exactly what Abraham was getting ready to do. I wonder why he got up early in the morning. I think I would try to put that off as long as I possibly could. Perhaps knowing Abraham's faith, because as, again, as we continue to read the, the text here, if we were to do that, and then we bring in Hebrews chapter 11, it was in Abraham's mind, because of his great faith, that God was, yes, going to allow Abraham to go through the process of sacrificing his only begotten son, but on the flip side of that, God was going to raise Isaac up from the dead. Because it was through Isaac... Abraham, then through Isaac, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed because he was an important part of that seed promise. And so in Abraham's mind, Isaac was already raised from the dead before he even was put to death. But beside that, he still didn't want to have to go through it. He didn't want to have to put his son to death. Just like God didn't want to put his son to death but knew it was necessary. And so I, I wonder why he got up early in the morning. Was it to get this over with? Did he get up early in the morning, I wonder, because he was going to be in the presence of God in a very unique way. We started studying the book of Nehemiah some on Sunday night, and you know that when God's people were taken out of uh, Jerusalem, the city was destroyed, the wall was destroyed. Of course, that means the temple was destroyed and the altar was destroyed. And when they returned from captivity, Babylonian captivity, in those three stages, in the first stage, what did they, they uh, uh, build back first? They built back the altar to reestablish connection with God. Because the altar and the temple represented the presence of God. And so Abraham's going to erect this altar to put his boy on, to sacrifice him just as God commanded, and God was going to be there. I wonder if in some unique way Abraham was thinking, I'm going to do something horrible. I know God's going to see us through it on the other side, but in the meantime, I'm going to be in God's presence. Under the patriarchal age, as we've seen here, the burnt offering was critical. You look at verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he put his son on it. And he took fire in his hand and a knife, and he went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb? Where is the paschal lamb for a burnt offering? 
And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went together. And fast forwarding, God provided the lamb. But under the Mosaic age, there's also the significance of the burnt offering. There was a daily burnt offering uh, in the temple under the Mosaic age. In Exodus 29, verses 38 and 41, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And so Mosaic age, again, the burnt offering, the Paschal lamb. It was also used as a trespass offering, Leviticus 14. Both a burnt offering and a peace offering uh, were, were given by use of a lamb uh, at the dedication of the altar of the tabernacle in Numbers 7, 15 through 17. The lamb was used on great occasions, like in advance of David's preparation of the building of the temple. You recall how that David, God appointed or anointed David on three occasions to become king. He wasn't the first king of Israel, but he was anointed by God to become king. And he, of course, becomes king after Saul. And one of the things that was appointed unto him to do as king was to prepare the temple. Now, David couldn't build the temple. Why? Because he had too much blood on his hands. But he could prepare the way for the temple, and he did. And an important part of his work was an offering uh, in advance of David's preparation for the building of the temple, 1 Chronicles 29-21. Solomon, of course, would later build the temple. The lamb would also be used as a sin offering, Leviticus 4, verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he'll bring a female without blemish, and then he'll lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some blood of the sin offering with his finger. He'll put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. And then he'll pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar. And so a sin offering. But probably the most familiar and the most remembered of the lamb offerings the sacrificial paschal lamb is before the Passover. And you, of course, remember that account in Exodus chapter 12. Just a little bit of background there. God's people were taken out of Egyptian bondage, and they make their, they, well, they're getting ready to leave Egyptian bondage and make their way to the promised land. But they were being held up by Pharaoh, right? And so God had appointed a, a deliverer. And the deliverer that God appointed was Moses. Now Moses, he wasn't aware in the early stages of life that he was going to be some grand deliverer of God's people. In fact, if you were to, to consider the, the history, some of the early history of young man Moses, he's probably not the one that you would think of as being a deliverer of God's people, not exactly a peaceful kind of person, and yet he was. In Exodus chapter 3, we have a little bit of an initiation of, of Moses by God to prepare him to become that deliverer. Remember when he's there standing at the foot of the mountain and he looks up there and he sees that bush that's... that's uh, that's on fire, 
but not being consumed. And he's impressed by that, amazed by it, actually. And Exodus 3 tells us that he goes up there and, and he's just overwhelmed. And then he hears a voice. A voice is not some psychotic break that he's having, but the voice that he is hearing in this moment is the voice of God. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground upon which thou standest is holy ground. And of course Moses takes his shoes off, and then he, he goes and he is now in the presence of God, and they have a conversation, and God tells Moses, you're going to be my deliverer. And he says, no, no, I can't do that. Uh, you pick somebody else. I, I don't have the words. I, I wouldn't know what to say or, or how to say it. And he says, you don't worry about that. I've got it covered. You go and do what I've told you to do. Well, if I go do this, who should I tell them sent me? And he said this. He said, you tell them, I am that I am hath sent me unto thee. You tell them that. You ever wondered about the significance of that expression? Tell them, I am that I am. I am is the verb form for God. Which reminds me of the fact that not only is God all-powerful, Elohim, not only is God all-caring, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, not only is God almighty, El Shaddai, but God is a, is a doer. He is the I am that I am. He is an active God. And so Moses goes back and he, he's preparing the people and he's trying to help convert the heart, if you will, of Pharaoh. And he was doing so through plagues. Because after each one, Pharaoh would say, nope, not letting your people go. Well, finally he comes to the big one the big plague. He says, I'm going to kill all of your firstborn. I, I'm going to kill all of your, your firstborn, not just, not just the animals, but your children. I'm going to kill the firstborn. But here's the out. Here's the out. I want you to sacrifice this lamb, this this Paschal lamb, this Pascha, this Passover lamb. I want you to spill its blood. I want you to take that blood and I want you to rub it all over the doorposts. And the death angel is going to come to your house. And if that Passover lamb's blood is on that doorpost, he'll just pass over. He'll just pass on by. And your child will be fine. And so the Jews did exactly that, and the death angel passed over because of the paschal lamb. And that's probably the most significant. Now, when you fast forward in history, I, I think it's interesting to notice a couple of historical events. One is how that the core of Jewish faith, uh, faith was rocked when during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, the temple was desecrated and the daily sacrifice was taken away. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. But can you imagine having this historical significant event taking place and because of the desecration of the temple, it couldn't happen. 
It's almost like coming to, coming to worship on Sunday for the Christian and, uh, and the possibility of participating in the Lord's Supper was completely removed. There's, there's no longer any fruit of the vine. There was no longer any bread. We, we couldn't find it anywhere. We, we couldn't create it. No ingredients to create it. And it's as though it was just completely removed from us. We couldn't participate in the Lord's Supper. And that's what it would have been like for them on some level. And then you think about the events of AD 70 with the destruction of, uh, of Jerusalem there and, and how that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and, and the temple was destroyed and no longer will you have this sacrificial offering of the Lamb. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a first century Christian who converted from Judaism, who now is no longer obligated, due to the Mosaic system of law, no longer obligated to offer a sacrificial lamb because the sacrificial lamb called Jesus was sacrificed for them. Can you imagine every Lord's Day, those new Jewish Christians partaking of the Lord's Supper? And being haunted, not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but being haunted in their mind with this gruesome, bloody outpouring of the insides of the Lamb. And the purpose of that sacrificial offering was to atone, looking forward to Jesus, was to atone for their sins. I wonder how we might take for granted the Lord's Supper on Sunday because we don't have in our minds such vivid imagery of sacrifice. When I think of the Paschal Lamb, I think of an innocent lamb, an innocent lamb, simple and innocent, such the creature was. Jesus, likewise, is our innocent Paschal Lamb. And, and we're not just comparing the Jewish Paschal Lamb to Jesus, but we're stating that He was and is our Paschal Lamb. Is that strange to think of a, of a man as being a lamb? As we've been talking and I've been making some comparisons, do you find that strange? You find it strange to be referring to Jesus as the Paschal Lamb or the Passover Lamb or the Lamb? If we think it's strange, we, we really shouldn't because the Bible often speaks of Jesus as being the Lamb. In Jeremiah 11 and verse 18, Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it if you showed me their doings, but I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. I'm a docile lamb. Why would it be so strange to think of Jesus as a lamb? The Bible speaks of him as being the lamb of God, John 1 and verse number 36. 
He was the lamb that was led to the slaughter, Acts 8 and verse 32. The lamb. Sweet, innocent, some might even say beautiful, if you see that, that beautiful lamb's wool. Perhaps as you saw the first lamb image that I put on the screen, maybe you animal lovers thought, well, that's such a sweet-looking creature. Jesus is not only pictured as a sweet lamb, but he's pictured as much more. The word lamb, amnos, is not the only word that's used for lamb in the New Testament. Another word similar to it is arnion. And when you look at it in the book of Revelation, it's not just this this lamb, this sweet, innocent lamb that would take away, speaking of Jesus, that would take away our sins. But it's also an authoritative lamb. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse number 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When I think about the Lamb of God, this authoritative Lamb, words of authority, I can't help but be reminded of John chapter 6 when these folks were told to to go and capture Jesus and bring him in. And when they went to capture Jesus, Jesus was speaking, and, and they were so enamored by the voice of Jesus that they just let him go. So they returned to the rulers, and the rulers said, well, where's Jesus? We sent you to capture Jesus and bring him in. And we couldn't do it. Why not? John 6, I believe it's verse 36 For never man spake like this man. His voice of authority was unique. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 16, the paschal lamb was not only authoritative, but the paschal lamb was vengeful. He said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And so while we may think of the the lamb as being this this sweet and and innocent and peaceful creature, and in a sense, he is, of course, one of these days he will be a vengeful creature, Jesus, the judge. And on that day, it's going to be wonderful for for some, but for many, and and I use that terminology specifically because it's New Testament terminology, it says that there will be few saved. And so one of these days we'll stand before the judgment, and as we stand before the judgment, there will be the Paschal Lamb. He wanted to be the Paschal Lamb to us while we were here on earth, but when we're there standing before the Lord in judgment, He's no longer our Paschal Lamb, but He is our judge. And if we're unprepared according to the vengeful Lamb of Revelation chapter 6, What he says here is really frightening. In that moment, standing before God, waiting to hear either, well done or depart from me. If we're going to hear the words, depart from me, 
The vengeful lamb says in that moment, it would be better for you if you had the ability to cry out to all of the mountains, all of the rocks around the world, fall on us so that we might not stand in judgment of God. Yes, he is innocent. He is sweet. He is redemptive. But he's authoritative and he's vengeful. But we flip it over a little bit to a more positive outlook. In Revelation 7 and verse 17, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about the Lamb as being tender and kind. He's tender and kind. There's a song that, that we have sung through the years. No tears in heaven. No sorrows given. All will be joyous in that day or in that land. And I think we've allowed that song to become authority for what it's, going, what it's going to be like in that transition to heaven and heaven itself, uh, as opposed to allowing the Scripture to be the authority on the subject of tears. I don't know that I fully understand this, but the Bible tells us in uh, Revelation 7 and Revelation 21 that as we get ready to go over, I don't know if it's when we're getting ready to go over or when we're there. I don't understand that part. But when we're in that process, Jesus says that I will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more crying. So I don't know if it's as we're getting ready to go into heaven or when we're in heaven itself that God says, I'm going to wipe away your tears. What does that imply? That there are tears there. I don't, I don't understand that. Maybe you understand. I don't, I don't quite get that. But the point is, in Revelation 7 here, is that the lamb is tender. And he cares. And he's kind. And he's God. Revelation 5 and verse 6. He was an innocent lamb. He did not want to die. He was not worthy of death, but he did it anyway. Matthew 26, 36. He was a dependent animal. The Paschal Lamb was a dependent animal. I see the symbolism in the shepherd in this point, and this innocent lamb who was dependent upon his father, Jesus dependent upon his father. He was also, though, not just a lamb, but he was a shepherd. That's an extraordinary, extraordinary picture of Jesus. Jesus was a lamb, yes, but Jesus was also a shepherd. One of the portraits painted for us in Scripture is that of Jesus as the good shepherd. But not just the good shepherd, but also the chief shepherd, John 10, verses 11 and 14. Shepherd was a unique character was a unique character that carried very special tools. It would carry a script, 
for instance, a bag and carry that, that, that bag that was made of animals and um, nice little animal skin bag strapped over his shoulder. And he would have food in it. Perhaps he would have some bread, maybe some dried fruit, maybe some olives, perhaps some cheese. He would carry a sling. Not a slingshot, but a sling. The book of Judges tells us that someone who was really good with a sling had the ability to, to throw that stone and hit something as small as a piece of hair and not miss, Judges 20 and verse 16. Sometimes to protect the sheep, he would, he would take that sling and put a stone in it and sling it around and throw that stone and he was so precise that he could drop that stone right in front of a sheep from a lamb to keep it from going over the edge of a cliff. That good. He would also carry a rod and a staff. Psalm 23 and verse 4. Of course, you think about the staff, this long crooked stick so that he could, he could grab that, that lamb and pull it out of harm's way. Or if that lamb had gone over the edge of a cliff on a little ledge there, he could, he could reach down and pull that lamb up the hillside. Carry the rod. The rod would have a rather large end on one side of it. And he would use it to war off maybe dangerous animals, thieves. The Bible talks about the, having to fight off the hyena, the lion, the bear, 1 Samuel 17, 34. And that was David, and David was a shepherd. Jesus was our shepherd. He is our shepherd. He's not only the shepherd who, who has the tools of the trade to, to protect us and to, to try to keep us safe, but he also cares about us. And, and that's evident in, in shepherds. As we read Scripture, we, we see that, that those good shepherds, they cared for their sheep. They knew them by name. May have called their sheep brown leg or spotted boy or black ears. Some name that was unique, and he knew each one of them by name. In history, shepherds would be playful with their flock. They'd play games with them. They'd run around and play hide-and-seek with their sheep. And it's really interesting to read about it. They would, they would go and hide. The shepherd would go and hide. And, and then the sheep would look all around for the shepherd. And once they found the shepherd as a group, they would all be jumping up and down just like dogs. They were playful. They cared. But they also had a vested interest in their sheep. They had a lot of resources tied up in their sheep. And I think about Jesus. Jesus has a lot of resources tied up in us. God has a lot of resources tied up in us. The blood of His Son, Jesus, the sacrificial years that He lived upon this, this earth, Finally, Jesus was a serving, or the lamb was a serving animal. Humble, obedient, 
exalted. Let's put a couple of passages together. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Put your finger there in Philippians chapter 2. And after you've found it, back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and, verses, and verse number 7. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse number 7, it says, But made, speaking of Jesus, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? When you take those two verses and add them together, what you're looking at is someone who has identified the sacrifice that they've gone through, putting aside all that they are to be able to serve someone greater than themselves. Specifically, that's Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Paul said, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Notice, be like-minded, be of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, mind, which was also in Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore? God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at that name every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word mind means to exercise. It means to think. Contextually, it means to give your mind a workout so that your mind becomes more like Jesus' mind. Be like-minded. Let His mind become your mind. What did He think about? This text tells us. He thought about the importance of being a servant. A bondservant. A, a doulos or a diakonos. Jesus was a slave. But he wasn't just a slave for God. John, the book of John tells us that he came into this earth to be a slave for his father to do his will and not his own. But he wasn't just a slave to the father. And this is what I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Jesus came to be my slave. 
Jesus came to be your slave. He came to be my minister and yours. Jesus, our Paschal Lamb, the slain Son of God, He shed Himself of His rights. He shed Himself of His deity to become the perfect servant to God and for me. Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, the Pascha, Jesus, my Passover lamb. Jesus, my slave, my servant, my hope. Jesus, my salvation. Jesus, my God. Up from the grave he arose. And he did. Praise God. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no hope. And that's why we're here today. Because of the hope that we have in Jesus. Because of the promise of His coming. Because of His arrival. His life. His death. His resurrection. His ascension. We can go to heaven. You want to go? I can't wait to get out of here. I, I can't wait. I want to go to heaven. That process begins with an acceptance of Jesus. And an identification that He is going to be the Lord of your life. A willingness to say, I believe in You, Lord. And I want You to be my number one. You've got to repent of your sins, though. You've got to change your mind about sin. You've got, to, you've got to decide, I just want to live for Jesus because He's really all that matters anymore. I mean, there are other things that are important to me. Family, job, friends. They're important, but they don't matter most. Jesus does. So I'm going to change my mind and I'm, I'm going to seek my very best to follow Jesus even if nobody else around me will. I will follow Him. But I still have that sin. I still have that sin that's weighing me down. I, 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 the decision is there. I want to obey Jesus, but I still have the sin. I've got the guilt of sin. I've got the stain of sin. How do I get rid of that? You've got you to paint that blood around the doorpost of your heart the blood of your paschal lamb by that I mean simply you've got to be baptized that's how the blood flows in your life repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins Acts 2.38 be baptized to access the blood of Christ to get into Christ Galatians 3.26 and 27 be baptized into Christ to have every sin washed away so that you can raise, be raised from that water a new person in Jesus. Romans 6, 1-4. through 4. Activate the blood. Something to think about today. 
as we stand, as we sing.